0: When I say the word worship, what is the first thing that comes to mind? When I say worship, what's the first thing that comes to mind? For many of you, you'd probably say, well, singing of course, but as we come to the end of summer, maybe it's not that. Maybe you thought, man, spending time in Banff or Jasper and seeing those beautiful mountains, that is where I can worship God the most. Or maybe you have the opportunity to spend some time on a lake and you just love being out on the water, or you've been out on a walk with some good friends, or gathered together over coffee for this deep, robust discussion. You know, when we talk about worship, we often think we're immediately talking about music, but it's so much greater than that. Over the last couple of years, we've been going through some of our church values as our first sermon series in the fall. Two years ago, coming right out of COVID, we thought we want to spend some time talking about courageous community. What does it mean to be a people who deeply care for one another, who love one another, who carry one another's burdens, who are in deep relationship and communion with one another? Last year, we did innocent capable mission. And we spent almost an entire year talking about evangelism. What does it mean to have an invitational culture? How are we going to live in such a way that we embrace people and bring them into our homes, bring them out for coffee, bring them to church and our small groups? This year, we're talking about generous worship. And maybe right now you're thinking, Dave, that was a really short worship set, like a song and a half. What's going on here? And over the next six weeks, we're going to be mixing up our worship service a little bit. Today we're going to end with a couple of songs, so it's an opportunity to respond. Maybe there's going to be times where we do things that are a little bit different in this worship uh, series together. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about, well, what does it mean to sing as worship? What does it mean to give as worship? What does it mean to serve as worship? And we want to draw you in. Today, looking at the big picture, what does it mean to have a life of worship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you for the group of people who worked so diligently to come up with our five values as a church. And as we talk about worship, may it not be something that happens for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. But maybe something that is part of our entire life when we're at home, when we're at work, when we're at play, when we're doing the things that we just think are just normal everyday things, that everything we do would glorify you. And so God, as we look at one of the most important uh, verses in the entire Jewish scriptures, may it be something that grabs our heart, that makes us think, wow, what is God doing? And that your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every person in this room the way you need to speak to us today. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to uh, open them up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're brand new to church, welcome. There should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you're watching online, certainly you can grab your smartphone or a tablet and hop online and and download this app. Uh, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. So if you start in Genesis, where we've been over the last eight weeks, and we have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then we arrive in Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 6. Big Numbers uh, are the chapters numbers small numbers are the verse numbers but allow me to set the scene up as you get there Over the last number of weeks, we've been going through Genesis and this big idea of the beginning. Well, at the end of Genesis, um, the people of Israel find themselves going to Egypt. And then you open up the next book of the Bible, Exodus, and these Israelites have been enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years. And so they cry out to God. God sends them a rescuer in the person of Moses. Moses and God work together to draw the people up out of Egypt and slowly make their way out to the promised land. But almost immediately upon arriving out of Egypt, the people start complaining and God says, okay, you're gonna spend 40 years until this whole generation that I rescued out of Egypt has passed away and a new generation is ready to experience the blessing that I'm giving them for the promised land. So we arrive at the book of Deuteronomy and this people, this nation of Israel has been wandering around the desert for 40 years. And Moses is like that dad who's speaking to his kids the first time they leave home for the first time and he gives five sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. And the people are sitting back and about to hear what it is that God wants to say to them before they cross the Jordan River and enter the land that God has promised them. For those of you who enjoy taking notes, we start with this, love God wholeheartedly. Here is one of the most important verses for our Jewish friends. Deuteronomy chapter six, four and five. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. For our Jewish friends, this is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. They'd be well familiar with Genesis 1 to 11, the passages we looked at over the last couple of months. They'd be familiar with the story of Abraham. They'd be familiar with Moses. They'd be familiar with King David and Elijah, one of the greatest prophets. But they would have this verse ingrained in their hearts. For the Jewish people, they would say this verse, it's called the Shema, every morning and every night, every day of their lives. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These verses are called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for here. In Deuteronomy, it's about 35 chapters long, and we read this word here over 70 times, an average of twice per chapter. Moses speaking to the nation of Israel says, listen, hear, respond. This is what I have for you today. And the word here is important. It doesn't just mean listen. It means to pay attention to, to respond with what's being shared. Listen to this. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. There is no word for obey. In Hebrew, you shema. Well, we may not have a word for this in English. I think we can understand the concept. How many of us have had our parents, our teachers, our bosses look at you and say, are you listening to me? But they don't just mean, are you actually listening? Do you hear the words that are coming out of my mouth? They mean, are you going to do what I'm telling you to do? How many of us uh, had parents who say to us, stop taking cookies from the cookie jar? We've heard them. Are we going to obey them? Hear, O Israel, the Lord has spoken. Interestingly enough, Moses doesn't go straight into what the Israelites should do. He reminds them, the Lord our God the Lord is one. There's this theological and practical implication that's taking place. Practically, it's a reminder that, uh, of the God Israel worships. They left Egypt, which has a pantheon of gods. They're going to the promised land, the land of Canaan, which also has a pantheon of gods. For the ancient culture, if they wanted to have a baby, they would pray to the God of fertility. If they were about to plant their crops, they would pray to the God of the harvest. If they were about to go to war, they would pray to the God of war. And God is saying, no, 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 you have one God and I am he. And if you want to have a family, you pray to me. And when you plant your harvest, you pray to me. And when you go out to war, you pray to me. And before we engage in any little chronological snobbery, we need to do a little heart check. We might go, well, what were these people doing having all of these ancient gods and these little idols in their homes? But how often do we bow to the God of power or money or sex or comfort? We might not literally pray to them, but our whole whole lives are set on trying to find that a little bit more. We're going to pray to the God of power because if I work hard enough and I get that promotion and if I get that job that I really want, then finally I'll be able to do the things I've always wanted to do. And I'm not getting enough sex at home, so I may as well look online and find somebody there. Or maybe I'll go to my club and my wife or my girlfriend or my partner won't need to know about that. And we pursue these things that aren't glorifying unto God. God is saying, come to me. Come to me alone. Let me push all of those idols, all of those gods out of the way. Give me all of who you are. There's also the theological implication of having one God. God. As Christians, we believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we believe in a God who lives in perfect community with himself and we're reminded that we are to do the same. There's no one God who can contradict God because he is the only God. And so when he makes us a promise, we know he can keep that promise. When he fights, nobody can stand against him. There's this deeply rooted trust that we worship one God and one God alone. Don't let the world tell you what to do. So when Israel arrives in a new land, they must not fear the worship of new gods. When we encounter difficult situations, we're reminded that God is totally and completely in control. And so every morning and every night, the Jews would wake up and before they go to bed, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. My friends, I looked at the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and I I wondered, do I just preach these two verses alone? Because it just hands me those three points, right? It tells us about the love of the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your might. And I find this really interesting to look at this big picture. If you keep your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read about this Shema, the greatest commandment in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but each has slightly different variations. Matthew records Jesus' response as saying this You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Then in Mark chapter 12, Jesus actually adds a fourth one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And then he adds, with all your mind and all your strength. So what's going on here? Ancient Hebrews didn't actually have a word for brain. They had no concept of the brain. Everything was done in your heart. Check this out. Proverbs chapter two, we read, wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul." Again, in uh, chapter 14 of Proverbs, wisdom rests in the heart of a man by understanding. In the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, this idea of the mind came in. And it's the first time in all of history that we're aware that they looked at it that way. From before that point, everybody looked at, the heart was the wellspring of knowledge, of wisdom, and of understanding. And so whether you're looking at the Shema or the three passages in the Gospels, the big idea is, will we love God wholeheartedly? Will we love God with every part of who we are? Will we love God with our mind? Will we love God with our emotions? Will we love God with the very essence of our being? Will we give all of ourselves to all of God? The Bible isn't trying to be a psychology book here that's only talking about thoughts and feelings. Rather, the scriptures are inviting you to think deeply about a committed relationship with God. This idea, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, you might look at that and think, but I don't know if I can. I don't know if I want to. That seems really hard. What are we supposed to do with this? But as one commentator points out, it's actually what's best for us. If you were talking to somebody and you said, what's your perfect, ideal way of going on vacation? And they said, man, I would love to be at a beach house on a beautiful lake. And you said, I happen to own a beach house on a beautiful lake. Why don't you come to my place for the weekend? That would be giving them what their heart desires. If you were to meet somebody who is starving for a meal and you said, what's your favorite meal? I would love to cook it for you. It would be giving them what their heart desires. And God is saying, allow me to be that one God, that one person who you worship, that all of the little gods, all of the little idols would be pushed to the side. Going back to the book of Proverbs, we read this. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of your life. Because God is in control of what happens at work. God is in control of what happens at home. God is well aware of our relationship challenges. God knows your hopes and your dreams. He knows your biggest fears. And he says, bring all of that to me. Give me a life of worship. Translating ancient Hebrew to 21st century English is one thing, but capturing the essence of what takes place is quite another would be easy for some people to say, "Well, the heart is the intellect, the soul is the emotion, and that might is our physical bodies, and and that works that gets the idea across, giving all of ourselves to all of God." But we'd be missing something. This word "might" in Hebrew, it means um, is often translated "might" or "strength," but the Hebrew word is mi'od, and it means "exceedingly much." It's an adverb. It there, is there to help describe what the verb is supposed to do in other words it could read like this love the lord your god with all your thoughts with all your emotions with all your body with your very muchness that we give all of ourselves to all of god it's a beautiful passage calling us into something deeper verses seven and eight he shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The richness of this text is incredible. The Bible will often use a figure of speech called a mirrorism where the opposite parts represent the whole. From his head to his feet, that boy was filled with energy. And when we read verse seven, we see something beautiful taking place here. Moses is looking at the nation of Israel and he says, when you wake up and when you go to bed, when you're at home and when you walk along the road, Every part of your day from morning till evening at private and in public, give all of yourselves to all of God. But it doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be weird to talk about God with your kids other than at bedtime or at supper or whenever you might do that. My kids love going to the park and so we take them fairly regularly and my son will be on the monkey bars and he'll be swinging around and I don't yell out, God invented monkeys, nailed it. There's something more. God wants you to say, well, what's going on around us? Yesterday, I went and visited my sister in Rocky Mountain House. And if you ever go up that way, uh, you'd head down uh, south on Highway 2 and then go down the Highway 12 route. It is beautiful. Green as far as the eyes can see. All these beautiful trees, the fields, the farms. It's beautiful. My parents came with me and the kids my wife is away out of, out of the country, actually. And, uh, and we just stopped and said, God, how beautiful is that? Kids, what is your favorite part of God's creation? And they can talk about the trees or the birds or the animals. Kids, what would you like to talk about? Um, what would you like to learn about in the scriptures? Maybe you take an index card and you t- write down a couple of Proverbs or a Bible verse for that to be discussed over a mealtime and you talk regularly with your kids and regularly with your partner and regularly with your roommate, what does it mean to follow God all the time? Shifting to verse eight, binding them as a sign on your hand, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. There's this interesting discussion in the academic world Is Moses literally asking them to tie something to their heads and to their arms. If you've seen um, Jewish worship, it might look something like this, where they take verses and they put them in these little boxes that they tie to their heads or they tie to their arms. They're called phylacteries. You might remember about 10 years or so ago, the WWJD bracelets that were going around. And everybody would be wearing these bracelets and they would look down at their bracelet and they would be reminded, what would Jesus do? This isn't terribly different. The idea behind it is that we would give all of ourselves to all of God. It's not an accident either that God talks about head and hands. What are we thinking about? What does it mean to be a Christian at work? What does it mean to go to the office knowing that one of your coworkers, that one of your subordinates, that one of your higher ups you know is treating you poorly, you know is lying? How do I handle that? How do I go home and show love to my family? How do I become a good neighbor for Jesus? And then about your hands. What does it mean not to just think about such things? How am I going to live this out? When we talk for an entire year about an invitational culture, when's the last time I've invited my neighbor into my home to enjoy sitting out on my back deck and just talking over a barbecue? What does it mean to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my very muchness when I go to the office? What does it mean in my retirement community? Do people know that I'm a follower of Jesus? Do I look different than those around me? What does that mean? That brings us to verse nine. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Does your private life match your public life? Do you, represent well, do you represent Jesus well to your family and to your roommates? Do the people that you work with know that you're a follower of Jesus or do you keep that all hush hush? Do you love God wholeheartedly so much so that people go, there seems to be something different about you? Maybe there's somebody at work who's difficult to love. And you think, I'm going to be the person who is kind to that individual. I am going to show them what the love of Jesus looks like. I'm going to go out of my way to make it a little bit easier for them at work. God isn't expecting you to walk around the job site or walk around the office saying, hey, everybody, Christian here, Christian walking through but do they see it, do they know it, do they think there's something different about that individual? Are you living a life of worship in which you love God wholeheartedly? Are you a joy to work with? Are you a joy to your partner and to your family at home? Are you a joy to your roommate? Do you go above and beyond to help your co-workers? Do you put in an honest day's work? Do you do your entire job remembering that you're not working for your boss, but ultimately you're working for God? Is there something different about how you live your life? Spent a lot of time on that first point. The next two aren't going to be nearly as long. The second part is this, verses 10 to 15. Remember God constantly. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, that you take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you for the Lord your God is in your midst a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. The Bible is a really long book, and it's easy to get lost for um, the forest, for the trees. And, but when you look at it from a 20,000 foot view, you see this cycle that continually happens for the people of Israel. The cycle starts wherever you would like it to start. Things are going really well. The people forget God, God brings trouble, the people pray. And things start going well again. And this cycle takes place over and over again. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And they cry out, God, help us, help us. So God sends the Moses and through incredible miracles, he rescues them from Egypt. He brings them into the desert. They sing praises unto God. We're gonna talk about this again in a couple of minutes. And then what do they do? They complain. The entire book of Judges is based on this cycle. The people are settling into the promised land and they get a little bit too comfortable and they forget who God is. So God raises up an army against them and they cry out and God brings a judge. The judge helps them overcome the difficulty. Things get better again and they become complacent. Eventually, the nation of Israel comes under a king and we think, ah, now life is good. Now we have a king, now we have um, a, a stronghold, now we have walled cities, what can possibly go wrong? God's blessing is upon us and God sends prophets and he says, turn your hearts back to me because you're becoming way too complacent. The people go, no we're not, everything is fine and God sends Assyria to take over the nation of Israel and the people cry out. The nation of Israel at that time has been split in half. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Judah watches Israel gets taken over by the superpowers of Assyria. They become complacent. And God says, did you not see what I did to Israel? And they said, we're different. And then God sends Babylon. And then they take over the Judites and takes them into, ba- uh, into exile. And they cry out for help. In a life of worship, we are called to remember God constantly. I'm sure many of you have heard this sermon illustration before, but I think it's worth saying again, coming to church each week is a lot like the meals we eat every day. If I said to you, what did you have on Tuesday night in April? You'd look at me and go, I don't remember what I ate on Tuesday in April. But the food that you ate in April sustains you so that you're here today. You don't remember all of the sermons that we preached during the first John series. I wrote most of them, I don't remember what I wrote but you know that going to church in the spring sustains you so that you are here today. And through good times and through bad, we remember who God is and we remember God constantly. This is a life of worship. Most nights um, my wife will put either the boys to bed or my daughter to bed or we'll switch. Normally, um, I end up putting my daughter to bed, and so I say regularly, London, what would you like to pray about? What are three things you're thankful for? And about half the time, she goes, I don't know. And it's this little game that we play. And I said, so are you, are you thankful that you got to hang out with Claire today? And she'll go, yes. Are you thankful that we had a puppy? Yes. Are you thankful that Daddy cooked supper? Mm, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> But this idea of are we remembering God constantly? Do we remember what God has done for us in the good times when things are great and in the bad times when we feel like we have to rely on him because we have nowhere else to turn? Summarizing chapter 6, it's really interesting. You can hear this um, cadence that takes place. These cities you did not build. These houses you did not fill. These cisterns you did not dig. These vineyards you did not plant. Remember, children of God, everything comes from God. God. Everything we have comes from God. Our friends and family are a gift of God. We live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, one of the richest places in the history of the world. Are we thankful for that? Are we thankful that we worship God freely in this beautiful building? Now, some people might say, you know what? I'm a self-made man. No, you're not. You're not. Who gave you your intellect? It came from God, who gave you your parents. They're from God, who gave you the school you went to. It's a gift from God. And you say, yeah, but my work ethic got me there. Your work ethic is a gift from God. Everything we have is this gift from God. And God is saying, remember me constantly. If you want to live a life of worship, remember me. Thank me for me. (laughs) God is saying, remember me constantly. This is what it means to be a child of God. Everything we have is a gift from God. We live a life of worship. We love God wholeheartedly. We remember God constantly. We obey God unconditionally. Verses 16 to 19. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord and it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord has promised. The opening verse here gives us a clue to the heart of the Israelites. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. I love this um, that I've pulled out of a commentary. To put someone to the test means they are guilty until proven innocent. It's not a typo. It's not written down wrong. God, how do we know we can trust you? Prove to us that you're actually worth all our obedience of all the gods in the world, of all the things we could worship. Why should we worship God and not everything else? If you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, I know we've already kind of briefly looked at it a couple times. There's something fascinating that happens here. 400 years of slavery. They cry out to God. So God raises up a man named Moses and miraculously rescues the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. Watch how quickly this happens. Exodus chapter 14, Israel crosses the Red Sea. They are go to the other side totally safe. Pharaoh's army completely destroyed. The very next chapter, chapter 15, they worship God for their salvation. In most of our Bibles, it would probably be titled Moses' song or Miriam's song or something of that sort. The next chapter, God bringing this entire nation up out of Egypt and into the desert. How are we going to be fed? I am going to give you food from heaven. Every day, says God, I'm going to bring down bread from heaven for you to get. And you think, God, how incredible is this? The very next chapter, they complain. We don't have any water, God. Don't know if we can trust you anymore. And Moses is looking at the nation of Israel saying, have you not learned your lesson? Has God not proved himself? You understand that you can trust him, right? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Instead, give all of yourself to all of God. If you hear this phrase and you're thinking there's something vaguely familiar it may be because of the temptation of jesus in the wilderness right after jesus baptism in all four gospels jesus goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by satan there's a first test there's a second test then after the third test Jesus looks at Satan and he quotes this verse Deuteronomy 6:16 6, and Jesus says to Satan it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test Why not? Because he's proven himself time and time again But let's be honest whether you're brand new to church whether you've been sitting in these pews longer than I've been alive obedience is hard God, I don't know if I can be obedient all the time. I don't know if I can obey you unconditionally because you want so much of me. You talk about wanting my time. You talk about wanting my money. You talk about wanting my expertise. I'm supposed to be kind to the people who at work I don't even like. I'm supposed to invite people into my home. I don't know if I can do that. Evangelism scares me. I don't know if I can live that way. I saw something on social media a little while ago that really resonated with me said something like this, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember word for word. It said, life is hard. Being single is hard. Being married is hard. Being divorced is hard. Being overweight is hard. Going to the gym is hard. Unemployment is hard. Working is hard. Retirement can be hard. Being a friend is hard. Being lonely is hard. Choose your hard." Do we obey God unconditionally? It's hard, but so is ignoring his commands. Choose your heart, it's gonna be difficult. But God is saying, give all of yourself to all of me. Our passage ends with this, and it's a fascinating ending, picking up in verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies? and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all his commands before the Lord our God as he commanded us. I want to invite the worship team to come up on the platform and the prayers to come forward. Why do we live a life of worship? We do it because we want to love God wholeheartedly. We do it because we want to remember God constantly. And it looks like this by obeying God unconditionally, unconditionally. But sometimes we have this why, right? Well, why should I do that? It's really difficult. Why would I put in all of that effort and all of that energy? And there's something beautiful in these final few verses. The gospel is laid right out. And I'm gonna change that from our Jewish friends to our, our Christian, um, the Christian reality that we live in right here, right now. Why should I give all of myself to all of God? In verse 21, because we were slaves to sin. All of us in this room have sinned. All of us in this room have fallen short of the glory and the perfection of God. For the Israelites, they were under the um, slavery in Egypt. For us, we were under slavery to sin and God is saying, I want to rescue you out. All of us have fallen short with the words that we say to one another. All of us have fallen short with how we've acted. All of us have fallen short time and time again and yet God over and over and over again forgives us because God miraculously rescued us. The Jews will constantly point back to what happened in Egypt. Remember that God saved us. Here we are in 2023 and we constantly point back to the cross. Remember the rescue mission of Jesus. Remember that God sent his one and only son and his son Jesus looks and says, dad, what do you need me to do? And God the father looks at his son and says, I need you to go on a rescue mission. I need you to show humanity what perfection looks like. I need you to die for their sins. I need you to rise from the grave three days later to show that you are greater than sin and death and anything the enemy can throw our way. And then it's an invitation to obedience. The Jews are looking at their moms and dads and saying, why do we do this? Because God rescued us from Egypt. As followers of Jesus, well, why should we live lives wholly dedicated to God? because he's rescued us from sin, and he's calling us to live lives in which we give all of ourselves to all of him. I mentioned earlier in the message that during the sermon series, we're going to mix up the order of service a little bit. It's not always going to be all the music at the front, sermon, and a closing song. We're going to do things a little bit differently. Today, we have two closing songs, and maybe you're sitting here going, it's the long weekend right away, the beginning of a school year, the beginning of a ministry year, this reminder that I need to give all of myself to all of God. And maybe you want to pray with somebody. We have, a, um, we have somebody right here, my friend Pepper. We have my friend Nestor on this side. And if you're thinking, I just want to come and pray, come and pray. Maybe it's for relationships, maybe it's for healing, maybe it's just saying, I wanna do just a little bit better at work. I wanna have the encouragement I need to be an evangelist. I wanna be just a little bit kinder to my spouse or a little bit better of a parent to my kids. Or maybe you're just gonna stand there and you sing your heart out to a great and glorious God who deserves all of our worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for our value as a church of being a people would be generous in our worship, when we sing, when we pray, when we give, when we practice hospitality, when we serve in the church, when we live our lives, that we would give all of ourselves to all of you. So Heavenly Father, we pray that we would open up our lives to be ones of generous worship, that we would come forward in prayer, that we would sing deeply, and we would be people who love you unconditionally. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.